this is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Mr. Cosby invited me to Sunday breakfast. Hot cakes, eggs, and cereal with no sugar. Barely was that through when he probed into my religious upbringing and beliefs. He invited me to Sunday school, shaved me, and we drove down at the pastor and his wife and his three daughters. The eldest daughter was the prettiest, no doubt. And I behaved quite well for an unbeliever, for an unbeliever. I behaved quite That was our new best friend, Dan Byrne, <laughs> with this song, Unbeliever. Uh, yeah, he, he behaved okay for being an unbeliever, you know, because I guess <clears throat> if you don't believe in a sky god, you are just an unethical bastard. Uh, so uh, welcome, everyone, to the show. It's July 18th. 
uh, you know what I saw just this week? Some back to school stuff in the markets already. Like, really? It's fucking July 18th, people. Leave me alone until August. Really? A, I don't give a shit when it's back to school because I don't, I'm not in school. I don't have children, but I know you, I know 4th of July is over. I know you can't think of any other reason to make a little special pile of shit in the middle of the market to, 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 to sell at a certain price to me. Uh, because, you know, uh, I don't know. You're just, you have no imagination. So you have to make it back to school because it's the only thing between July 4th and September that you could possibly come up with as a holiday. Um, so, uh, Ah, oh, just so irritated by that. Um, you know, we could be celebrating midsummer and it's not quite midsummer yet too, because June 22nd was just the beginning officially of summer, you know, not the, not the corporate beginning of summer, but the real beginning of summer, the actual earth beginning of summer. Silly us wanting to just dis- make that distinguished thing. Anyway, uh, so welcome everyone. Uh, very excited this week about the show and, um, what else is going on uh, before we get before I jump into this week's essay? Uh, I don't know anything. Well, you know, there's always something to be shouting about in the world on Twitter about. Um, and uh, so certainly uh, the Zimmerman thing is the big thing that everyone was having reactions to. And once again, I found myself on the sidelines going, hmm, I don't really understand any of these people's reactions because (laughs) yes, the justice system is inherently racist. And yes, it's certainly there are certain people in Florida who are definitely um, backwards and ignorant and racist. But um, from what I understand from the testimony and everything, I don't know, I guess the prosecution didn't do its job once again. Um, so what I, I read, though, a great slate blog post last night about what's really what really happened is that it's all about assumptions, projections and overreactions uh, on Zimmerman's part and um, and then on everyone's reaction to the <laughs> to the verdict part. And that if we just stop overreacting and uh, perceiving each other and putting each other in small little boxes, things might get better. Uh, so. And yes, I, I suppose that's part of the problem of racism. I'm certainly not going to get into the depth of that today. And we'll ask my guests all about it later if we feel like it. I don't know if we feel like going there or not. But uh, so anyway, but, you know, I just more and more I see these outrages on social media and everything. And I just don't I just think mm, I don't think I want to fall into line here with either one of these sides here. Isn't there got to be a third, fourth, fifth, sixth and seventh perspective? I suppose there is. All right. Let's do the essay, and then we'll be coming back after a great song with my guest, Peter Joseph. Very excited. Okay. Uh, name of my essay today is False Idols. It's all so clear now. I see how it has worked, how my creeping fear of being left behind and alone while the chosen few move forward and into the glory of the gods of success and money, how this fear has helped me to abandon my intuition and knowledge of what it means to be human and live life connected to what really matters, my body, this earth, each other. If the new gods are material goods and the abstraction of life itself, then call me a pagan, please. I see now how easily it has been to lure me into their church, their thinking that something is wrong with me because I don't have the stomach for what always ends up being a path of meaningless materialism and fame. I see it all so clearly now. 
morning, that part of the day when the serious world, the world that needs to get something done, comes pressing in on my body and mind, reminding me how I'm not living up to what it needs me to be. That world of mind-numbing commutes, cubicles, coffee breaks, that world that promises a pot of gold at the end of the career rainbow, that world that dangles a life of leisure golf and little blue pills into my sunset years, somehow that world installs a seed of doubt in me about my life of art, soul, and beauty, so that when that world extends its greasy little greedy hand towards mine, inviting me to join it, my mind succumbs like a waif in the arms of a rough god and I fall. My awe of the morning light and the green of the coral tree is up against the machine that has the work of the world to do, important, respected, rewarded, in the name of progress work to do. How did I get here? How did I forsake my knowing for this propaganda? But really isn't the question, how could I not gotten here? Born into 1963 and the promise of endless progress, men on the moon, Play-Doh, and I dream of genie, I was pulled in from the beginning. Even with a father whose very source of being was to push up against the status quo, even then he succumbed to the allure of the newest technology, coolest car, and ease of the good life. Do not replace one god with a new one. That is what modern life has done. We have gotten rid of the superstitious gods who made the earth the center of the universe and installed the gods of ones and zeros that promise that they can preserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness if we put all of our trust in them. We have entrusted our futures, our resources, and all of our knowledge to these shiny new gods of progress. Do not replace one god with a new one. Remove all gods from the pantheon. Worship only at the altar of this moment of what your senses tell you is real, the taste of a freshly picked strawberry, the rhythm of a song that moves both heart and body, the twinkle of joy and depth of sorrow that the eyes of a loved one holds. All gods are abstractions, distractions from who you are as living beings. The more I step away from the abstractions to balance my life with the knowledge of my senses, I strangely understand what it is meant by the fall from grace. The other day, I wrote this poem about turning 50. Here it is. 50. An age. A number. A vista to look out from. Now. Here. Earth. I am part of this earth again. I do not remember leaving it, no memory of ripping or blood or scream, just the scab, the scar on my heart, my fingers tracing its outline in search of a way back to a memory, a glimpse. Oh, so long ago. First spelling test, mother crying, breathing in fame like ether. Decades of chasing tales, finding no bodies. Like a song, a wind, I am sung back to my home by the siren of she. I am finding home here, in body, place, and the other. I am the sea. Oh, cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Oh, cinnamon, 
Where you gonna run to? Oh, cinnamon. Where you gonna run to? All on that day. Cinnamon, rock will be a melt in the Lord. Said Cinnamon, rock will be a melt in the Lord. Said Cinnamon, rock will be a melt in all on that day. Run to the sea, sea won't you hide me? Run to the sea, sea won't you hide me? Cinnamon, see'll be a boil in the Lord said Cinnamon, see'll be a boil in the Lord said Cinnamon, see'll be a boil in all on that day. Cinnamon should have been a prey in the Lord said Cinnamon should have been a prey the Lord said Cinnamon should have been a prey all on that day Satan Satan won't you hide me Satan Satan won't you Satan said, Cinnamon, step right in. Satan said, Cinnamon, step right in. Satan said, Cinnamon, step right in. Oh, on that day.
That was Spanky McFarlane, the most fantastic Spanky McFarlane, a great example of uh, Durrett while we were playing the song. My guest, Peter Joseph, and I were talking briefly about art and artists in our culture. And Spanky is one of the most talented humans on earth as a blues singer and um, barely has a pot to piss in, you know, just amazing. Uh, so, yes, that was Spanky singing uh, sing- Sinner Man. Um, just she's a great woman. All right. Very excited. Uh, I think pr- probably uh, my guest today, uh, he and I could probably talk for 12 hours straight. But we don't have 12 hours, thankfully, because we would both be very tired. Uh, my guest is Peter Joseph. Uh, you know him most probably from um, a few things with the word zeitgeist attached to them. <laughs> zeitgeist the movie, zeitgeist the movement, zeitgeist the media festival. Uh, I know him as Peter. And uh, Peter and I had a very interesting uh, start to our relationship uh, right after my dad died, uh, Facebook was just kind of becoming a thing. And, you know, and of course I was dealing with the whole grief thing and, and just completely overwhelmed by everything and was starting to see the way people were using my dad's image online and through different things. And then some, somebody sent me a clip and said, have you seen this thing? This is an amazing movie and it's got your dad in it and everything. And I was like, oh, Fuck. Another fucking person using my fucking dad for their fucking agenda. I just got pissed off immediately. Didn't even care. Didn't even watch it. Didn't had no idea. And uh and that's the head space I was in back then. And then of course Paul Provenza, because Paul Provenza brings everyone into my life. I think it was Paul who brought you here. No? Actually it was Kevin Booth. Oh, Kevin Booth, who's okay, well Paul Provenza knows Kevin because they were you know, Bill Hicks fan right. or friends, best friends with Bill Hicks. And uh, so <laughs> Peter comes here and, uh, but I wanted to, but I wanted to meet you, as you know, I wanted to meet Peter because I was like, okay, I need to find out who this person is and everything like that. And, and I had calmed down a little bit too, but, uh, it was a little awkward at first, but now I don't give a shit. So, <laughs> and I know that you had done your due diligence to try to connect with my dad and, I did actually. I knew one of um, your father's producers' friends. Um, his name his name leaves me right now, but he was uh, he was friends with your father. Uh-huh. And I actually went through the route to connect. But it's important people understand that that film was never intended to be a film. Exactly. And that's a unique history. And I actually, in hindsight, I look back on all that because I didn't just have your father, and I had tons of people with <laughs> yes. zero, zero approval, and I was just waiting for the lawsuits to fly in once it became popular. Right. But at that stage, I it was literally a, pers- a personal catharsis performance piece that I threw together in my free time when I was working in advertising and doing things I didn't enjoy. Um, and I did a performance in Lower Manhattan of this performance work that was a vaudevillian style with two big screens. And I had the big epic film and me performing with a, I'm a percussionist, so I had a big percussion setup. It was very abstract and quite bizarre in hindsight when I think about it. <laughs> but that's what it was. It was a six night run. I did it for free. I, I, I attempted to get some rights clearances. I was like, you know what? This is for free. No one really is going to see this ever. This is before I even right. thought about the internet. You're in a theater in the lower part of Manhattan. It was a little 50 <laughs> uh, seat black box. Right. I remember uh, weeks before I went around and you've been in New York, obviously the village Mm -hmm. voice is the big publication. I went and I had these cards and I went at four in the morning and stuck thousands of these cards and all the little, Uh, that was was promotion for me. That was how crazy I was back in 2007 when promotion looked like that. Uh, And a bunch of tourists came and walked out usually halfway through. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was it was it was hilarious though because uh, I again I look back on it I'm like wow that was just absolutely strange but it was a part of what I felt I needed to do to do as a, a personal release yeah so again when it was done no every you know some people liked it feedback right but, I mean obviously it was never going to be pursued and. My friend uh, at the time decides, hey, he said, you know, the Google video has this thing that you can upload full videos. It was before YouTube. And mm-hmm. I was thinking YouTube had like a 10-minute limit. It's mainly just little kitten videos on YouTube at that point. <laughs> and I just threw up the, the main visual without some of the layers of audio that I performed up on Google video. I think I posted it on one on one blog, like some religious or atheistic blog or something like that. And out of nowhere, it went crazy. Wow. To the extent where I remember tracking the emails because I, I didn't even have a website at that point. And then like, you know, all the, the hits hit. The hits were showing up millions and millions, and I threw up this crappy website with a contact. And I remember watching the emails. It was one email every minute wow. for, for at least at least five to seven months. It was ridiculous. Jesus Christ, And I had Peter. Nothing, nothing for sale, nothing. It was just absolutely out of control. And, of course, that's when the phone started to – well, the email started to come in. My first name was Peter J. Uh-huh. So, fuck this. I'm not going to release my real name. <laughs> I'm not even going to come close. So then, of course, all the freaks out there, like, who is this guy really? He must be some, you know, some insider or something. Right. You couldn't believe the conspiracy theories that came Oh, I, I would love to hear that. And then, <laughs> and then I had to come out with Peter Joseph once once something... Well, first of all, it was dumb of me to say Peter J, because everyone wants to know what J means. Right. So then I did interviews slowly, and then you know, all this... Lots of stuff I'm skipping right now. And then suddenly, because my last name isn't Joseph. Right. Peter Joseph is my first and middle name. And I just solidified on that because that's what became my name. I uh-huh. never intended that. So people always ask me, why don't you use your real name? Like, well, because this is how it unfolded. Right. Why not? I, who cares what my name really is? Right, right. And frankly, the amount of number of death threats I got over the course of that period from the religious community mm. and the political community uh, were nothing uh, nothing fond uh, in the sense of I was actually quite terrified mm. considering certain instances. I was very happy that no one really knew who I was. Mm. So that's how it emerged. And then once it finally hit and then the piracy began, I started to see it being resold on eBay and, and every outlet. I'm like, okay, I got to take control of this because I'm going to be in legal liability anyway. So yes. then I went back and I got everyone on the horn and I paid out lots of money to release that film. There's still lots of rocks that are not left, that are left unturned, <laughs> I have to admit. And I did uh, leave a, a message for your father on his voicemail. I was like, hi, this is George. I'm like, hey, uh, and I also left one for his, his producer at the time. And uh-huh. no one called me back. So I'm like, well, I don't know what to do since it's already out there. Yeah, and yeah. Same with the Bill Hicks family because Kevin Booth, you know, he was very nice mm-hmm. to uh, to because he has sort of half the rights of the Bill Hicks stuff, right? And I talked to the Bill Hicks's brother, and they were actually they're very lenient with it. Like they're like, we like the film. So many people have directed us to it, you know, and they were yeah. in support of the way you depicted Bill and George, hopefully, and uh, that's the way it materialized. And and from there on, I kind of just sort of felt like it was a it was a little it was kind of given to me. Uh, and I think the expression in of itself is honest enough that people, when they watch these films, they don't look at it like someone's being exploited. Yeah. And I definitely understand and relate to your core objection. I know George, in all the interviews, I've studied him greatly. He never wanted to be put into an agenda of anybody else. Exactly. And I've never tried to really depict that. But I think whatever agenda he puts out on his own, yeah. I try to feel like it's been embodied. Right, right. And that you were aligning with it. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. And that's certainly how, how it ultimately comes across. And and, you know, but wow, what's so fascinating about that is that the way it caught fire, like, like literally you tapped into some unfed need, you know, so you, you had, you had encapsulated some 
conversation right. that was waiting to happen in our culture. You know, like uh, people were so hungry for it. Apparently. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, 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 and what I love about that is that, you know, I, I really believe, I mean, we're so, I, I really believe that the creative urge itself on some levels is, is connected to the collective creative urge mm -hmm. and that it just works through us individually. And, you know, that when you have an urge like that and you follow it and you see how it connects, you know, how much the audience, uh, I mean, that's like what sure. I, I live for, like helping people get that important message that if you have a creative urge, follow it. Right. Because it's, it's kind of the world psyche wanting to use you as the, its mouthpiece. I, I think all the great artists in history have served that role on some level, mm -hmm. and whether they're inadvertent or not. Usually it's completely inadvertent. Yes. And they, be, they become something in the public perception that they never intended. <laughs> so and, true. And it's yeah. fascinating how that happens for better or for worse. But I've always, as we talked about you know, before the break, uh, the artistic interest, and I always encourage people that are interested in the arts, because at my core, I'm really just an artist and experimenter, mm -hmm. even though I do all sorts of intellectual things and work with sustainability stuff and i'm really big on social redesign and actually creating relevant change in society at my core i'm, I'm really just toying with various ideas and mm. i think when you were able, in the communicative arts as i am you have to give yourself a great deal of leniency and trust yourself yes and not try to just not try to reflect and think excuse me not try to impose on society in the sense excuse me not, not try to have society impose on you to decide what you need to do next, which is usually what happens with most of my friends in the arts because they're seeking money. Ultimately. Well, it's just such a, I just, I could just run over there and kiss you right now <laughs> because I, this is so much what just personally inside of me, I dance with. I mean, it's kind of what my essay was about today, mm -hmm. you know, is like mm -hmm. staying connected to that pure urge inside versus that strategic mind, which I've really been witnessing a lot the last few years of me, the strategic mind that shows up and says, oh, well, there's three steps to success. <laughs> and if I just download this program, I too will get uh, A, B, and C. And and thinking, well, it's it must be working for somebody out there because look at all these people who have this great success or whatever. And mm. And it's so scary to resist that strategic mind and to stay with the pure urge. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. I, there isn't a day that goes by and I look at, you know, what I put together in my financial world, which is very slim pickings as I try to, to get another film series out. I don't question that. I say to myself, maybe I should be a little bit more of a dick. <laughs> you know, maybe I should try to exploit a little bit more. And yeah. I always kind of stop myself and remember that I'm the one that has to live with myself. Yes. So I, I'd rather live a modest, simple life than uh, than an exploitative one that I'm going to regret later. Because at the end of the day, I mean, uh, you know, I think about, I talk to a lot of people in the stuff that I do in conferences and stuff, and I always find that the older people become, the less all of these things that the pop culture makes relevant, the least they matter. Yeah. Because you you obviously, you break at some point, and you wonder what your sense of success really is. It's yep. a general pattern. 
And that's really the core statement. What is success? Yes. What is success derived from value and materialism? Obviously not, even though this entire economic structure is driven by that false reality. Yeah, so, and dangles it in front of you and it every needs it. second. It needs it. Yes. Just like you pointed out with your essay, you have to have all these community-driven values, a uh, Black Friday, you know, all these things that people <laughs> yes, hold on to, yes. uh, Christmas and everything else that's just been turned into what used to be good social capital, despite the religious superstition stuff. Right, it right. used to be good for community to come together for some kind of general unity has been twisted and morphed into one big commercial frenzy. Yeah. And it's in a sad, sick place, uh, and it's it's going to blow up if it hasn't already, because you know, we can talk about, if we want to get into any kind of economic discussion, I'm firmly convinced that everything that this society is predicated on as your father also talked about at great length, uh, is predicated on is in a process of faltering. Yes, it uh, it's obvious. <laughs> every every institution is at a loss and right the, now. The scary thing is it's messing with people's minds because their identity is so groomed into these these associations. So it's not just a failure of the mechanics of society in the sense of yeah, the sense of it's not working. We should do something else. It's also the identities. It's like it's, it's a it's a consciousness shift, a spiritual shift. If you know if you want to use that language, in it, a lot of ways. It, it is. It is definitely, and, and I think it's a fulfillment of the spiritual shift that began in the '60s, mm-hmm. but that because the machine was just starting to peak in the 60s, you know, after the post-war, you know, military industrial complex that we had really created a great amount of a momentum in this culture. Uh, you know, they, they were just starting to get their, uh, their, their fingers into us and, and, and move this, this society in a certain direction. So, but, but the spiritual values were definitely awakened then, you know, and, and, and yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. Um, before we get into the economy, economic part of it, though, sure. I do want to know a little bit about because I was watching doing some research and just loved the fact that you had worked in advertising and you were a bit of a day trader at one point. I did two of the worst possible, <laughs> uh, <laughs> two of the absolute, literally, I think the two of those meaningless uh, possible, I hate to even call them occupations, but industrial uh, facets of our grotesque uh, culture, advertising, which creates nothing. It just promotes the idea of something for the sake of consumption. And then the financial system, which it just, it really marvels. It boggles my mind how something like Wall Street, which has such immense power, isn't realized for what it really is, mm. which is just a gambling game. Yes. That is basically rigged. It's roulette. And <laughs> it has such massive consequences globally now because of all the offshoots and, you know, the appeal of Glass-Siegel and all sorts of other things yeah. that, that continue to compound it. But at its very core, the fact that this institution exists at all just blows my mind. It, yeah. For me, now I can relate to one element, element, and that's trading is the only job out there where you don't have a boss. You don't have a boss, you don't have a client. Mm-hmm. You're completely encapsulated into an internal system that you engage in the abstraction of it. And that was the, I just wanted out of the, my, my advertising job. Right, right. So that was why I was, I gravitated towards that. But, uh, it's, it, yeah. That's where I began to learn about economics ultimately too and began to realize what the, the debt plague really means. You begin to realize how sick and how, I hate, I don't use the word moral often, but, in the sense that nothing is sacred in that world. Mm-hmm. You play up, you play down. Yeah. If you want to destroy some foreign country's currency and make billions of dollars, yeah. why not? You can do it. Uh, this is, it's, it, it forces and reinforces, excuse me, it reinforces the general market perversion that I'm so against, which is completely valueless, has nothing to do with creation or human relationships. Yeah. It, it completely sucks the part of the humanity out of the human who engages it. 
There's just, there's zero, zero humanity in it at all. It's, well, it's that famous Eddie Murphy film where they they bet a dollar on this guy's life, you know, at the end, it's a dollar. My favorite, uh, documentary was the Enron documentary where they have the recordings of the traders. Oh my God. And yes. these are some of the people that I used to interact with. I have to admit though, that there's a, there's a mental block as you meet with many people. Like even if you sat down with Adolf Hitler, yes. you'd probably find some type of moral something that you could appreciate. We talk about painting yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and dogs, but there's a mental block that occurs with that type of value system disorder. No one thinks they're doing anything wrong. Right. No. Never. Yeah. And it's, of it, course, I mean, perfectly Dick nice. Cheney gets up in the morning and he believes he's doing the best for the world and yeah, the planet. He really, really does. I think you're right. And I get that. Yeah. And I, I, it leads into another subject that we can talk about, which is the Malthusian present uh, pre- foundation of the entire economic model, which I thought about on the drive over here. So let's, don't let me forget that one. Okay. But that's really part of the way this value system disorder has has originated itself is that we we think that we're doing something positive for ourselves. There's this there's this pull up your bootstraps ethic that says you should never do something good for someone else because it's 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 just going to lead to something problematic in the end. Yeah. Which is a very 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 unrecognized symptom of this disorder. And it's not how the natural world works. Not at all. The, the <laughs> utterly re- utter rejection of the symbiotic yes, and synergistic. The interdependency of us all. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a complete rejection of how actual evolution works and how actual life works right. on, on the planet. But was there a... Um, you know, what was your background? Where did you, I mean, you, you were a musician, you were a class, you were trained classically. I was a classically trained musician, uh, originally a school called North Carolina School of the Arts in North Carolina. And then, uh, and then the Manus Conservatory, the new school in uh, New York, but I dropped out. I was going to be a solo classical marimbist or a classical percussionist, but my featured instrument was marimba. Uh huh. Very obscure. And I think back on it now, it just seems utterly ridiculous. <laughs> Even though I respect the arts, and I think everyone should have that, uh, the the institution of the arts and what they've done is just another scam. Mm. And I, the college institution in and of itself is, in this country at least, is one of the worst institutions. I do not encourage anyone to go to college, not because I don't want them to get education, education, just because it's a monetary-driven system that is just going to bankrupt the vast majority. You know what college debt is now? It's off the chart. Uh, trust me, I went to grad school. Okay. I know what my yeah. personal college debt is. <laughs> so I learned the fast lesson when my family had no money. I dropped out my second year of college and I started to just work around New York, but that was my core interest. And for a couple of years, I did everything I could at a big percussion studio and a loft in, and in Brooklyn. And, and were you already connecting to like reading stuff about social issues? And I mean, was that like your background anywhere? Were you an activist? My, some- my mother uh, is now retired, but she was a, she worked in child protective services in rural North Carolina. Wow. So you can put that together as to the darkness uh, of her experience. And I always heard about those stories as a dumb teenager, though. You don't really, nah. never, but it, but it sat in a little bit. I always had a social, socially conscious outrage towards religion. Mm-hmm. I have no idea where that really came from, to be perfectly honest, but I, I grew You were up, just gifted. You were born gifted. <laughs> but I went to a Catholic school for a little while and there was just something I remember sitting back and being just perplexed by this. Right. Then, there's angels. There's what? There's what? <laughs> what century? Right. But, uh, so all of those, Social undercurrents were there. Yes. But it wasn't until I kind of, it wasn't until my zeitgeist catharsis around mm-hmm. 2006, 2007, that something just weird in my brain chemistry happened. Because I was just as much a self-indulgent idiot, just like anybody else, <laughs> pursuing advertising and training, wanting to be the most, one of the most narcissistic pursuits in the world, which is a classical solo musician, <laughs> where you sit in a practice room for 10 hours a day, completely detached from all reality. Right. Uh, again, I love the arts. I think it's a great meditation, but... Uh, it's it's also a fantasy land in, yeah. in a lot of ways. People get 
relegated in their mind to one particular specialization. Mm. I'm, I'm against specialization on the yeah, whole. Yeah, siloing think. and everything. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So that yeah, other than that, I really couldn't tell you how it sparked, but the confluence is there. And suddenly you needed to do this performance piece. Like all of this came together and you were like, this is what I need to say to the world right now. Exactly. Wow. And didn't really care if anyone listened or not. And as it turned out, it, they did. It, 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 it made a very bizarre place. And those who know me, it's funny though, because I, I run into old friends of mine that before I became Peter Joseph. Peter Joseph. And they're like, wait a minute, you're doing all this social stuff. You're like the most antisocial person we've ever known. <laughs> Which is also very true. So it's been a very big turning uh, turning point in my life. Wow, so fascinating. I'm just, I'm just, just, it just makes me smile and fascinate because I just, yeah. I mean, all of it is, 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 and and what I find really commendable, I guess, is that you said you just said yes to it all. All of it. You've like shown up and just gone, okay, yes, and now what? I, I, I think. As as I mentioned that break, uh, you get pushed. Yes. And there's two ways you can think about it. You can fight it and want to perform in some idealized world of yourself and push forward with... Usually when I speak with people, they have a very core success plan that's usually monetary materially driven mm. or traditionally driven marriage, kids, you know, all these things that they've got in their mind. Yes. Tradition. The path. And I, I, I've always been counterculture. I will give, give myself that. I've I don't know why. Again, my my parents were very normal in that sense. You know, they were never driven. I, I wonder where my values came from. I think it came from the arts, music, mm -hmm. and listening to people like your father. And mm -hmm. I grew up with that sort of renegade type of uh, world. But when I kind of realized uh, where I was when doing advertising, all these things I didn't like, and then Zeitgeist happened, and then all these pressures came, I decided to just let myself be pushed like the tide, uh -huh. and to see where I ended up. Obviously. Um, you know, I had to keep certain fail safes in place, but I really felt that the greatest satisfaction I'll probably end up when I get older is the fact that I felt like I did something relevant on a larger scale yeah. for society. Yeah. And I think that that's really, in a lot of ways, what we all are striving for with that sense of meaning. Because it's never going to come from just us. No. It's got to come from a relationship of some kind. Well, and and the, the the funny thing is, is that we're sold the package in this culture that it is just us. That, you know, if you just... You know, if you, if you remain solo and it's your vision and your thing that, you know, you're going to get some great satisfaction out of it. And there is something about growing up in this culture for, for me at least and never feeling like I, there was a place for my voice. Mm -hmm. So discovering my voice was really important to me and following that creatively has been really important to me, but that only goes so far. Right. It really, really does. And I, you know, and, 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 and I, it's a relief, I think, when you hit that. I, I think some people think it's going to feel like a loss because you're like, oh, well, I, I just want to be Lady Gaga or whatever it is. But even if you see people like her and some people who are very, very successful from their art in our culture, right. most of them turn around and are just waiting to find a way to reconnect and give back and lift up the tide for everyone else. I hope so. Yeah. I, I certainly hope so. I I the the phrase value system disorder is what sticks in my brain. I most, love that. Most of the time I walk around <laughs> uh, and I you just look around the world and it's basically like seven or eight year old kids mm -hmm. that are very confused. And I don't mean that to sound condescending, but to seven or eight year old kids. <laughs> 
insulting the seven. Don't want to insult the seven or eight year olds by you, comparing them to modern society. You do not, no. <laughs> but you see my point. Yes, it's a maturity issue. I think the humanity is at this, you know, little maybe about right here. Yeah, We're at this three foot mark in height. Yes, and uh, once we kind of get our grasp around this whole sustainability notion and what it means to relate to the planet and some very fundamental issues. I, I look forward to to see what progress really means when we finally hit the kind of adolescent years of our maturity. Yeah, and I see us more maybe as adolescents, like we're just kind of all wanting to just f follow our narcissistic urges. Although you know, kids want to do that too. But yeah, mixed metaphors. But but yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, yeah, well, we could debate about that later. Let's just debate about that <laughs> all the whole time. Um, uh, there's just so many ways we can uh, jump into all of this. Uh, it's just some of the languaging you use is just really very fascinating to me. And I think is very cool. Um, uh, one thing I was writing earlier was I was trying to, I always come up with funny names of things and I've decided I'm going to call Mer America capital Tania. <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of like that. Um, Groucho Marx, uh, what was the name of that fake country that he lived in? Something Tania. Oh, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it just reminded me of that. <laughs> that here we are in capital Tania. And if you're not part of the capitalist system, um, you're basically fucked. You know? You don't you don't get to participate. Yeah, Detroit just went bankrupt. <laughs> I I just got my New York Times there's, news alert on that. There's capitalism at work. There, for you. there it is, and the the foundation of this country's last hundred years. Mm -hmm. You know, the automobile. What I find so funny about the market system is predicated on the idea that failure must occur, and it's mm -hmm. a natural consequence, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yet, market discipline, it was they would call it, only applies to the poor. Whether if the or impoverished right. states or the impoverished countries, yeah. the United States has were the worst books than Enron. The United States has should have failed a thousand times over. We just keep pushing the debt ceiling. Why? Because it has certain fail safes, the U.S. dollar and its power. But it's completely artificially propped, and it's going to be really interesting to me when to see when this final dip actually occurs. Yeah, yeah. So market discipline is only for the poor. And that also goes to big business simultaneously. Yep. Yep. So they bail out the rich and, you know, give the poor the loans and everything else. Let the World Bank go to the third world. Uh, but I, it's going to, it can't be held up much longer. I think this Detroit issue is fascinating as I think I'm not familiar with the last full, you know, bankruptcy like that. Um, but there's New York was in the seventies. I remember that one. Yeah. That was, that was pretty dramatic. Uh, and then you look at the books of Los Angeles, excuse me, California itself as a state. Uh, it's It's been underwater for God knows how no, long. No matter how much Jerry Brown's trying to take the bucket and push pull the, push the water out of the boat as fast as he can. The only solution, and I'll say this to your audience so they don't bang their heads too much about this issue, is complete and utter debt jubilee. You have to forgive debt globally. Yeah, completely. It's one big self-generating plague. That and while we're at it, let's just get rid of the money. I, I think that would be great, too. <laughs> it's really not needed anymore. I know. You know, I was... I guess it was you who was talking to Jenk about this, about that if you if you've eliminated money from everything, everything would still happen. There'd still be food. There's we'd still be able to it was you know, we'd still be able to interchange services and goods. We don't actually need money to do that, people. And the most beautiful thing is in the past one hundred years we've we there's a term called post scarcity, which is kind of abused these days, <laughs> but post scarcity wow. in more fundamental sense over the course of the past one hundred years is rapidly accelerating. If you if you talk to um any technicians that are dealing with technology, information technology, it's a huge exponential mm. uh, growth curve on all walks from automation of labor to production of food to these new incredibly lightweight 
uh, prefabrication of homes that can literally be built and constructed on site. 2,000 square foot homes, very, very light, very, very fast in one day. There's revolutionary technologies that would cover basically every element of infrastructure that could be done if we apply this technology liberally with no need for this sort of exchange system and this assumption of scarcity. Yep. So every facet of our lives, and this is really a result, I mean, we could, you could go back to early Native American pre, you know, pre-colonial period, and they lived basically in the same type of world, but in a very minimalistic way. And, and very small populations, you know, things like that. And yes. they were naturally in line with, in harmony with, with yes. the world because of the restrictions that were inherent. And we often look down our noses at that and look at how unprogressive that is, but that, that actually is the embodiment of what our society, even in the most modern, sophisticated form, really should be. Yeah. So there's two two elements at play. There's the maturity of a society, which needs to recognize that there are limits mm-hmm. that we don't, we can't have this this distortion. endless growth. Yeah. Endless growth is cancer, Indeed. as Rick as Rick Overton loves to say. Exactly. <laughs> whether it's the debt system or whether it's our materialistic neuroses. Yes. Which is of course a driving again this driving value system disorder. Everyone thinks that they're going to have more and more or need more and more. And that's a big argument I have with a lot of market economists. They say, oh, people are just irrational. They want more and more. And that's the end of it. Well, if that's the case, then we might as well just die now because yeah. we can't, we can't, are we really that dumb? Are we literally retarded as a species <laughs> to think that? And I, the answer is no, because there are numerous historical examples that show people living in harmony. This is a materialistic advent that we've concocted in this culture, which serves the upper interest because it used to keep more and more growth and yep. boom. And then again, I can go on a massive tangent about the uh, <laughs> relationship of s- the modern day slavery to this, this oligarchical, inherently oligarchical elite that emerges. And I'm not in, referring to conspiracy or thing. This is just a natural outgrowth of this Malthusian uh, premise we have of society. You remember Thomas Malthus, the Reverend Thomas Malthus? Uh, he said that there's no way humanity can ever keep progressing because the more population grows, the more they will continue to produce because of resources. Excuse me, let me state that again. The more people reproduce is because of increases in new uh, advancements in technology, and therefore it's a self-feeding cycle. So the more we can feed people, the more they will m- multiply, and therefore it's, it's right. But that's actually completely dead wrong, hmm. because if you look at the third world, which has very limited resources, they produce much faster. Yeah, it's an educational and economic, uh, psychologically driven economic uh, problem that that causes that. But what's that? What that's done is it's permeated everything. I'm sorry about this little side tangent, but it's really important to me to state this because there's so much confusion on this level. The entire political basis of the United States and the entire assumption of the of the world is that there's not enough to go around. And right. it's based on that early Malthusian notion. And it justifies itself by the genocide of people, by the ignoring of the interests of others in other countries. And simultaneously on another tier, it also perpetuates the idea of more and more and more for one select group of people, mm-hmm. which is why the United States has five percent of the population consumes like forty percent of the planet's energy or something ridiculous like that. Yeah, you remember. But it, there's a sense of we are better than other people, mm. and this is one of the most horrid states of mind. You have to get, you have to shake that as a point of as a point of maturity. And if you do that, then realize you have a post scarcity world, meaning that you can provide right now in abundance for all the world's people, twice the world's population statistically, and everyone have a higher standard of living than most people have today. We're talking ninety nine percent of the most people. Uh, this is incredibly feasible if you can just people can just get that under your belt. That's why the Zeitgeist movement and all of my current work and lectures. That's all I talk about. Right. It's called ephemeralization. That was the coin worn by Buckminster Fuller. Yeah. It has to do with more with less. And the most powerful trend that we have in the modern world is look at this computer right there is more powerful than the the biggest 
400-ton, $7 million computers of the 1940s. Oh, this thing, my iPhone, has got yeah. more computer power than the, the space thing that went up to the moon. Exactly. <laughs> I love and that, that. And that stretches across the board to almost every, yep. every discipline. Yep. And the real sickness to me is that we're not even pursuing it. So that the intention of society is to not even go forward with post-scarcity. We're not even trying. Why? Because money needs scarcity. Yep. If in, And it's it's a clash. Yep. So scarcity rules. Well, yeah. And, you know, and that's the thing. I've, I've been reading a lot of Wendell Berry lately. And, um, you know, he, he's a farmer. And he talks about how terrifying it is. Just about uh, – and and it's so interesting because you you know you talk a lot about technology and and what we can do with it and and it's like it's an understanding then of like using technology for good but the one thing that's happened in our culture and especially the last 100 years is that the people who fund the technology and who decide like just we'll just say like the nuclear bomb let's you know let's split the atom here's here's a here's an in uh a a discovery or something that happened that they figured out how to do that completely changed the direction of the planet and was a huge, a huge ethical thing. We did not get to vote on it as a planet. There were just a couple of white guys (laughs) sitting around in a room deciding whether to do this or not. And then the impact of that kind of stuff, the impact of, of even just sequencing the DNA or just all the major things we're doing, no one's thinking about like what's how this is going to how this could roll out in five, 10, 50, 100, you know, 500 years. And and the un the, the, the consequences, the damage that it can cause and how I mean, look at our fucking planet, the damage we've caused this planet. And and it's so frightening that we've become so plugged into all of this stuff on some level and and become now dependent on it, not just even from like a materialistic way, but almost like a, a visceral way mm-hmm. in some way. And that we, we just, you know, whenever the new thing comes out or whenever they, they do the next big thing, we all just go, well, yes, that'll be fine. That'll <laughs> be okay. And, and that scares me that, kind of blind progression like right, that. Right. I agree. It's it's misguided. Yes, completely. I think what you touched upon in the beginning of that that point, I think is great to restate. One of my one of my most dominant influences, apart from your father in many ways, is Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. And Carl Sagan uh in fact, you, you remember Culture and Decline, my show. I, mm-hmm. I, my joking pitch when I tell people about it, it's Carl Sagan meets George Carlin. Because <laughs> Carl Sagan, he did this, this wonderful little writing uh, thing where he talked about, he's like, maybe there is a God. He's given us a choice. On one side, he's given us this amazing, this amazing technology that can solve problems, that can create a, what he, he implied, basically a post-scarcity reality. Or we could use it for, to completely to destroy ourselves and to use it for a means that have no social betterment whatsoever. Right. And that's the, and Buckminster Fuller took the same route. He said, uh, there's living re and there's weaponry. And mm. he differentiated between the two. And, mm. and right now it's all still basically going to weaponry. It is. Yes. In intention too, whether you're, if you're in a marketing, yes. marketing mindset, yes. you're trying to get in there and sell shit and use, use all these new gadgets and psychology to get more stuff for you. Well, and, and the corporations have completely taken over the R&D and universities. They're using our greatest minds yes. in order to weaponize product. You know, how sure. I mean it's it's terrifying. It, it's a completely misguided and I, again that goes back to a lot of the things that I try to talk about when I when I give lectures and the like mm-hmm. is that what if what if we just shifted all of this energy into life support? 
Yeah. What if we did that? We could solve so many problems. It would be outrageous. And that's the great realization, I think, at this point. So my belief is, is that it's going to have to get really ugly and bad and worse for enough people to wake up and have their own awakening and say, wow, there's got to be a better way to do this. Like, yeah, the and there is a lot of waking up going on. And there has been for the last 50 years on the, the fringes of the culture. But we are all so plugged into, I need my car to get around, I have to go to the gas station to do that. Okay, these days don't always have to do that. Now I can plug it into the house, which means I need to be on the grid. But if I don't, then I can do solar power. But in order to have solar power, I've got to have $25,000 to, you know, all of that. We are so plugged into the system. And I, it's like, I want to learn to unplug from the system, but it it seems so daunting. And so I think, and, and I, if it seems daunting to me, I'm a person who's pretty intelligent, has you know, decent resources in my life. I'm not the richest, certainly not the richest person in the world. I mean, surviving, but, uh, and I don't have a corporate job. I don't have, I'm not, you know, attached to the culture in that way. But I think it's got to feel so daunting for 95% of the people out there. It's very frustrating. Because again, in my circles, I run into people of modest means that are trying their best to get off the grid, yeah. trying to disconnect and try to be sustainable on their own right. It's so difficult to be sustainable in separation from the society. It goes, yeah. it goes back to that synergy issue. I, I think there will be finally, uh, even though it's at a slow pace crawl, I think eventually you you will see a decoupling from grid structures. Yeah. Houses will finally be built with the photovoltaics and, and the, the heat pumps and other, whatever the, the environment can allow to be completely off the grid. I think that's a natural occurrence, just like the electric car will eventually happen. Yeah. But the rate of change, of course, is so slow because of the of the step-by-step profitability mechanisms that want to assure that these big corporations don't lose too much. So you don't move fast enough, which is terrifying. Right, because these huge, slow institutions that want to protect their and their I, gas car. And I and I and I think that the conundrum is is that at what point do you sacrifice certain certain lifestyle conveniences for the sake of uh, principle? Yeah, and I think that's that's the ultimate issue. And I'm I'm guilty as, of that as anyone else. Uh, I do my best not to own very much. I like to be free of ownership. Mm-hmm. I only own a car. It's the only thing I own, apart from some musical instruments. But I rent everything. I try to be as mobile as possible. I think that the new, another speaking of new patterns, a new pattern that's emerging will be people are going to start moving around. We have Airbnbs. We have all these things. We have, we have the zip car. I think this sharing society yes. is starting to become, and this is, I think, is a great stepping stone towards a transition to a new, new worldview and a new economic structure. Once people lose that sense of materialism and they actually want to be free, they realize the freedom of not owning a bunch of stuff, yes. which is what I try to explain to people. Uh, then they'll start to shift. But I couldn't agree with you more. And back to your original point, the failure of society is never going to be step by step. I talk to people like, well, when's society going to collapse? We can do something new. <laughs> like, well, Damn it. <laughs> well, this is the problem with that is that it's only going to collapse for the outskirts. Yeah. And there's going to be so much suffering, just as there already is. I mean, yes. we're already at mass starvation levels on the planet constantly. And it, it's going to keep in, in like, you know, you drive around Los Angeles, tons of homeless, but it still looks wealthy. Yes. Yet if you go to the Midwest, the United States, it's desolate. 
poor, miserable. Yeah. Mm. No one sees this. And they mm. don't, certainly in the West, they don't see the poverty that happens in the third world. So those de- degradations will persist mm-hmm. while the illusion of success and the advancement of technology and the seemingly association of betterment with that te- technology will occur in certain pockets. So, hey, look at this little town over here. For example, there's a self-sustaining town, I believe, in Switzerland, completely off the grid, has maybe a couple, I think it's like 30 or 40,000 people. And uh, they 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 share everything. It's it's you look at it. Oh, this is amazing. But yet it's a tiny little pocket. Yeah, it's completely isolated and utterly elitist, frankly. Yes. And uh, it shows that it can be done, which is great. But I don't encourage people to wait for some collapse or want to see more suffering. I do agree that it's going to happen. Yeah. And hopefully it will wake people up. And going back to the movement stuff, our as an educational movement, we're trying to get these ideas out there so when people do hit that point. They realize that there is something else on the other side and hope that we can avoid some of the suffering by getting everyone to understand it so fluidly that, boom, they can step in and start to force some change. Yeah. And, and you know, and the other interesting thing I always think about is um, if you look at the, like how – have you ever heard of the book Generations or the Fourth Turning? No. Oh, by Strauss and how. Uh, amazing, guys. They studied – generational cycles of the Anglo-American history. Mm-hmm. And they, they go back into England a bit, but it really s- starts here. And there's these four main generations and there's these four turnings that happen in our history. Okay. About every 25 years is the generational thing. And so right now we're approaching the fourth turning again. Some other moments of fourth turning in, in American history, the American Revolution, the Civil War, uh, the Depression, World War II, where there's a complete disintegration of society and something new completely different emerges after it. Right. And, um, I mean, not completely different, but, but a different enough. Sure. There's a, str- a, there's a restructuring of things. Gotcha. And we are in that right now. We're actually, it hasn't quite yet started. They, they feel it's just starting to beginning to start. And, and what's so fascinating is, is that, People worry, and, and you were talking to Jenk about this a lot too, which I thought was really interesting because Jenk kept saying, yeah, but how are we going to do it? How are we going to vote for all these things? Who's going to decide? And the thing is, is we don't know yet because the thing about evolution is, is you can't look a hundred years down the pike at a species of a bird or a thousand years and, and predict what it's going to go because we are not separate entities. We are part of the environment. We shape each other in every single moment. So the environment is going to shift. We're going to shift in reaction to the environment. We're going to make some action, which is going to shift the environment again, which is going to shift us. And it is this dance that happens. So that's what fascinates me also is to think about, yeah, you and I and people like Ken Wilber and Don Beck and these people have these visionary ideas of like how the evolution of consciousness could change. But we don't really know yet. Yeah, I don't think anyone's ever been able to predict. No, you any can't. Any type of social transition. Of, I, I mean, I think there's certain averages that yeah. occur. I mean, you can look at what was supposed to be communism and then capitalism and that dichotomy and sort of look at two different value systems about what it means to be communal and what it means to be independent. Yeah. And obviously they're both, they're both equally as flawed because they're taking two different extremes. Right. But, I, you know, the issue with predicting the future and what the future will be. I think there are certain things we can hold on to pattern wise. I'm a trend follower. Mm-hmm. That's what I pay attention to more than absolutes. I'm not interested in the current state of anything. I want to know what the trend is. And I think if people pay attention to that, and I'm in the middle of writing actually a big a document on this subject for post scarcity, 
I think once people can understand that there are certain patterns that have been around for a very long time that are going to persist regardless of our what we think uh, should happen or shouldn't happen, uh, we can start to hold on to these things. And mm-hmm. I think the political system, going back to your point about with my conversation with the Young Turks, uh, they want to fit that into the old paradigm. Exactly. Obviously. Yeah. And that, that's not the way it's going to be. And I could go on a long tangent about what decision making in a real society, I say real society in, in gesture, but a society that's actually trying to work in a, in a holistic sense. There's only one society as a global society. And until the world actually thinks that way, it's not a society. Absolutely. It's an yeah. No matter how much there are a few of us are around who can think in that way. Right. But yeah. Yeah. But you, it, yeah. Go on. Uh, are you familiar with spiral dynamics? I've heard of spiral dynamics. I'm not familiar oh, with you it. Though. Got it. You, you're okay. gonna gronk on this shit. Okay. It's good shit, man. This guy Peter Graves started studying because it's all based on values, which I know is big for you. Right. And uh, I mean, I'm not gonna do it justice, but he has studied the evolution of of basically the human value system mm. and and how we go from uh, um, how we've we've uh, as a, ge- a general evolution of humanity organizing itself how we went from tribal to empire to uh market mm-hmm. uh to to then post market which is more like um kind of a uh communal green it's kind of what was born in the 60s you know that we're all connected and that kind of stuff and then right. and then and, and on and on and it's all a study of you know, what do in people in each of those groups value most? And one of the most fascinating things about this work is that because of global communication and travel, we are now having to deal with every single value system that has been alive in human history right. at the very same time. It's true, yeah. And that even within our cultures, we have all of those things too. You have a tribal sense of culture. Even in America, you look at people who uh, gang warfare perfect example of tribal warfare. Um, sports is a kind of a fantasy way of playing out tribal energies. Right. Uh, Democrats, Republicans, it's become very tribal, actually, in sure. some ways. Sure, sure. Um, and then you have empire, which is one God, one law, which is the very traditional kind of Republican, conservative kind of thought. Mm-hmm. And then you have the marketplace orange people, they call them, which is very much, uh, you know, people who want free market and age of enlightenment, and there's no more religion, it's all reason based. Um, but it is every man for himself type right. of thing. And it's just it's a fascinating look at the trending of humanity in general. And, and, and then they have these, these second tier stages, like right now, this is all first tier. And the thing about being in the first tier and being one of these value systems is that you don't recognize the validity of any other value system. It's certainly a trend. (laughs) Right? And you only see yours. Whereas there are these second tier value systems where people can see the value of every single one of these aspects because Mm -hmm. they hold something important for humanity. Right. They hold something like the trends that you're talking about. There's certain things. There's something important about law and order in some ways that when you hit the red light, you need people to be stopping because the green light, people are coming through the green light, the lines on the road, you need to stay on the right sides of the lines of the road, you know, Um, you know, anarchy doesn't work you know, with things like that. Um, and, and so it's just a fascinating look and it's all driven by what the environment, how, when the environment shifts, 
how our values then shift in it because we now have different needs are being uh, called to be met right. within them. And the trends of technology, I think, have been really powerful to shift these values. Yes. And I, I, one thing I would say is that I don't put people down for what they believe, regardless of how insane it is, uh, in the sense that I know that it's all true in some sense, from some perspective and some angle. Right. So it's a truncated, I use the word truncated, it, even the most deeply religious and closed off mindset that really believes in Old Testament stuff and that's the end of it. They're frame of reference is truncated to the period of time that that text was created and right. the worldview that people had at that yes. point in time. Yes. So I think it's, it's good to be fair in that, but that sounds like a fascinating book. Yeah. But, I, I would love to turn you on to that sure, and, sure. and then talk about it with you. Right. <laughs> well, I made a, I've made a comment to many people about, you know, technology and our values to the effect that if you went back a couple hundred years without electricity and you took the lifestyle that people had, and you superimposed our technology today yes. without the value shift. In right. other words, without the need for lots of light. Right. You, no one would have to work. And people don't. People look at me confused when I say that to them because everyone's so used to the, you know, right. what they're working for. They don't realize that the value of everything is completely in their head. Yes. Now, would you rather be free? And I say this to people get all utopian on me too, and they think I'm talking utopia right. that everyone's right. gonna have an infinite infinity of everything. Right. Pop out a planet if you want your own planet. <laughs> uh, and of course, that's crazy. And and the, the distortion is that people just don't see that what they think they deserve is completely in their mind. Yeah. And it's all socially related too. you know, yep. the, I talk about a lot. And if you've seen the culture and declines, this this imbalance we have that's uh, called psychosocial. It's a psychosocial phenomenon that people relate their value to each other based on the material status in comparison. Yes. And it, it generates legitimate mental neuroses and pain. Yes. And so it's not even directly material. It's so it just goes to show how deeply connected we really are on that level. It's it's an, it's a forgotten science, or I should say it's a missing science when it comes to all social theory that you read about in your textbooks. You yeah, and, and I think it's something that I personally like that aspect of it, that kind of psychological social mapping is for me what I like, I feel like that's how I want to be of service to the planet, like help people really see how they're defining themselves and against what and, and really, you know, and, and of course, you know, the thing that kills me the most and why I desperately want to wake up from the American dream <laughs> is that the American dream deadens the, the subjective life and our connection to each other in a very sen actual body sensual way and our connection to the planet. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's no time for, uh, and I'm not talking like an overindulgence of emotion or an overindulgence of, uh, you know, living in a bubble of subjectivity. I'm talking about the power of the subjective mind to, to bring meaning to your life, right. you know, that there's, for me, when I'm writing something, uh, I have an actual physical, visceral understanding and reaction to what I'm writing that sets me off in a direction in my writing that I know when it's in, the, when I'm in the flow and working because I can feel it in my body. Right, right. And, and, and so for me, there's, it's like, I want to rescue people <laughs> from you know, we've been cut off, literally cut off and become these things where it's like, we will plant the desire in you, the false desire in you to need this thing or to feel better about yourself in this way. 
you know, it's the fucking matrix, you know, it really is on some level. Right. And, and it's like, I want to literally unplug people from that. And, I, and one thing I, I think it's fun to point out is that we're all at risk of this value system. Completely. I mean, that's what my essay is about. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I deal with it daily. People say to me, oh, you're so altruistic. I'm like, no, I'm not. I am just as selfish as anyone else. I just realize how dangerous my world is because of and, the way everyone else is and thinking. And see how easy it is. Every single, like, you know, this is what I've decided, you know, people like meditate in the morning or do yoga or whatever. And there's a lot of people, it's about finding the transcendent. And that's all great. Mm -hmm. And I've sat in transcendent space within myself. And it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it, for me, I've realized that these practices and connecting to the transcendent or connecting to earth in some way is really the only thing that keeps me defended against the machine. Right. Good. <laughs> well, everyone has their tactics. That's how I attribute yeah. my musical work. Yes. I go into that space. Yes. I don't pursue it professionally, but I have my, it's my meditation. Right. My, it my is. way to reconnect. To what is real. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and I hate I hate that word real and authentic and all that crap. But what other what, you mean, what right? other you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. like to 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 really unplug from the the constant messaging we get. And in like you know, I said in my essay, I was born into it. Nineteen sixty three, man. Mm -hmm. It's right. all about you know you're going to have a great future. You know, right. and I'd go to Disneyland and it would be Monsanto <laughs> and GE funded. You know, the future, the, the future of tomorrow or whatever it was. And it was this whole display of the modern life and everything. Right. And sign me up for that, please. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, it is a fascinating parallel, as you pointed out earlier. Obviously, I wasn't around in, in the 60s or 70s, but I, I reflect back in his, on documentaries that I see. And, and of course, all the writing, all the musical influences I had came from that era, which mm -hmm. might explain my general value structure. But I think the difference now is that there's actually a path as opposed to a gesture. Yeah. So we can, we can, we can really see it. At least I, that's, I think I can see it. I think a lot of people are beginning to see it. And it comes down to how we get there and, and the strategy of realigning ourselves. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and with anything, having a vision is the first step, you know, holding the vision and, and then just taking steps towards it. Not necessarily knowing the how of all of the steps, exactly. because we can't, you exactly. just can't, but knowing that if you can hold the vision and that, and that it's a constant relationship with the vision, you know, there's an updating of it always, you know, yeah. um, and, and I think there's another thing too, which I, th I think we're going to have to deal with as a culture is grief. Hmm. That, and we, we don't deal with it, grief, and on any shape or death in this culture at all anyway. A massive taboo, yeah. A and yet, I think as a culture, if we are going to be able to move forward in a different way, we are going to have to be able to grieve that we're giving up the chance of that utopian, materialistic American dream lifestyle that we've all been corn fed since day one. And, and kid, you know, kids growing up now, it's a little different. We've got 9-11. We have an economic, you know, somewhat economic downturn. It doesn't look like it when I look out there, but it's really, I mean. It depends on what, what area of the planet you're on. Yeah. I mean, I'm in here. I am in West LA, Los Angeles. Doesn't look like it here, right. but I'm sure I know. I mean, go to Detroit today. Yeah. It'll, there you go. Exactly. But there, but I, I think collectively we're going to have to figure out how to grieve this in a way because Without grief, it's really hard to transition and move on to the next 
level of self, just personally. I mean, release and letting go. Yeah, the collective psychology of this nation. Right, right. We're going to need to figure out a way to do that. I completely agree. I I see the culture, and especially in America, because it's the poster child of what the world was supposed to turn into on a couple different levels, as by far the most um, spoiled, I would say. And raising my hand there. (laughs) I'm deeply misguided. And I, I see the U.S. as a leader in the sense of value shift simultaneously because yes. what happens, what's going to happen in this country because it's not going to keep it, this, these levels of illusion are not going to maintain themselves for much longer. I hope we'll set the stage for the global transition, if you will, because once the U.S. and all of its, all of its glory and what everyone uh, looked up to. So I see this catalytic, uh, catalytic, uh, yeah. hopefully at a global scale when it, these shifts happen. Absolutely. And, and I really do believe that on some level, you know, although they, it was uh, deeply flawed, the the vision that the founders had of this country there there's something real in all of that. Oh, of course, underneath the cultural norms of the time and all of that, and that we we were the last promise of this planet, being the last kind of place to really occupy itself, and and that wouldn't that be an incredible role to play, you know, that instead of selling fucking Coca-Cola and McDonald's to the rest of this planet to, 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 to include everything that we've, we've learned about each other on the planet and, and be, and be leaders for that. I mean, that, that's my kind of utopian gesture, you know, towards it all. I don't know if it's real or not, but, um, you know, the, the innovation and the individualism using the best part of that. Sure, sure to move forward through all of this right. is essential. I agree. I, again, I'm not really nation centric, no, no. clear, but I know what you're saying. You know what Wouldn't I'm saying? Wouldn't it be nice? I, I think, I think probably another country's going to beat us to it initially. And when I say the symbology of the U S and its downturn, and when I, just, just describe the importance of that. I, I mean it from the standpoint that it might not be the first to do it. It might not be the leader. Yeah. But once it does fall, right. it's the final awakening, as yes. you so gesture. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the rest of the world that's been pining for this ideal, and they, they can't quite understand it. They don't understand why the U.S. has not failed yet or why it has so much money or why everyone yeah. seems to be, even though we're probably one of the most mentally unhealthy countries <laughs> on the planet. Completely, yes. Uh, that will be the final nail in the coffin of this, of this weird experiment, yeah. which, again, had tons of positivity to it, but it's been... It, it, everything's natural. Everything has a course of action. Yeah. So I, I think the what we've learned from this experiment hopefully will carry forward. I, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, you know what was the most frightening thing I read this week is that China is moving – I can't even imagine the number it was. I think it was 300 million people out of rural China and building these instant cities for them and moving them into these cities to modernize China because they want to keep their – economic progress moving so they need to create capitalists of uh, consumers of all these people gotcha, yeah. Yeah. and they are literally moving hundreds of millions of people who have had agrarian connection and life and sust- and sustained life not you know great quality in a lot of other ways but a basic simple life into these concrete man-made instant cities hoping Industrialized cities, oh right? Oh my God! With it, all, especially it may- when, when not to interrupt you, but when China has is, I China I look at as as the peak of what a market based industrialized system is, because in the market economy, 
it's a since it's state driven. Yes. They don't allow regulation of themselves. Right. Which is why they have huge cancer pockets. Horrible population. Uh, yeah. The last thing that China or most of these countries should ever do, considering their limitations, is to try industrialize at this point. Yes. Because they're not going to do it right. No. And we could barely hold up. We, you see how much power uh, we have to yield to get basic. Uh, efficiency it, reforms it, in the U.S. It feels I mean, like an act of insanity. That's crazy. It's, it's a collective insanity going on. Yeah, it's nuts. Uh, I remember just reading law a while back, this old data, but you know, everyone had bicycles in, in China, and it's still very yes. common. But they're like, no, we have to get more cars so we can fuel our economy. <gasps> Again, it's it's insane. <laughs> it's like no, but trust us, we're just we're just realizing here, not a good idea. <laughs> exactly, not a good idea. Oh, yeah. Although they may, although you know, and you look at the Chinese. Though, I mean, these are people that had you know writing, and I mean, way early, the oh, earliest yeah. civilization of uh, so many amazing innovations right. and thought and philosophy. That's amazing. So maybe they will go through the cycle faster in some way and they might be the innovators of technology and sustainability that we can't be because of their some their their state driven I don't know. Good question. Good question. I think Japan's probably way ahead as apart from their little disaster recently. But when it comes it's to what, what they're what they're trying to do, <laughs> it's not really their fault. Yeah. Uh, but that's another conversation. Yeah. But I think there's certain pockets that you kind of don't hear about that are modernizing in a very sustainable way. Yes. And they're doing things the right way, even though they're elitist and they're detached. And, and Northern Europe, expensive. too, also right. doing amazing things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's good. It's hope. It's yeah, good to there see is. There humans is. Humans are trying to work this shit out. Right. We are. We really are. We are a good, we are a work this shit out species. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we're on pace. Let's be positive. If anything else, we're trying to work this shit out, people. <laughs> we really, really are. Oh, yeah. my God. God, it's so overwhelming. Sometimes I just literally want to go build a treehouse. Believe me, I tear it all down, go live in the middle of nowhere, just be happy with some fruit. Yeah. Oh, it, it just sounds so relaxing, doesn't it? Doesn't I mean, it? Just to revert. Uh, um, yeah. And, and, you know, and I, I'm serious. I, I'm pretty sure that in the next 10 years, I will be building some sort of a sustainable commune. And uh, of course, my vision is, uh, you gotta have like all different decades of people, all different, you know, families, singles, whatever, artists, engineers, whatever you want. But you gotta have some 20 somethings on the land who can, are willing to, uh, you know, go out in the fields and because I, I won't be able to, I'll be <laughs> 60 by then. I'll be able to do a little bit. I can pick fruit. Uh, but, uh, I do want someone to help me grow my food and put a diaper on me when I can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will you will find a success with that. I uh, yeah because All the good work because my IRA is not looking good, Peter. <laughs> I, I um, bought into that for about ten years. Right, got some money going. I bought Apple at twenty two dollars. Okay, okay, so that was like the only that and buying my house are the only financial things I have connected really to, to the, the whole system. Right, did good on both those things. Need to p unplug at some point yeah. at the right point before yeah. it all comes crashing down. <laughs> um, uh, I just love your brain. Uh, I'm amazed at how much you have taken in what you were saying, 2006, 2007, all this started. So that's right. about six years, six, mm -hmm. seven years. You've consumed a, you've got a mind like a good steel trap. You consume information and 
you can uh, integrate it in a really interesting way. And we're all synthesizers. That's yeah. the phrase I use. We don't, none of us are original. None of us really invent anything. But we can be a little clever in how we synthesize and give that illusion well, of, sure. of originality. We, yeah. Well, and the originality is how it comes out and how you present it. One thing I pride myself on is that I, I think I do well with trying to communicate fairly complicated subjects in a, in a simple way. That's one of my targeted uh, Agreed. Interests. I completely hands down agree that oh, uh, with that. Uh, it's something I try to do also and 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 i think it's important you know if you're if you're born communicator that's what you are you're born a communicator and sure. your job is kind of to uh uh kind of like moses you know you go up on top of the mountain you get the you get the things you come down okay that's what it says today folks here we go all right <laughs> first one no uh so um do you have any interest – we're almost done here – but do you have any interest in cre- trying to create your own model version of this, some hands-on, how do we do this? Well, that's pretty much what I, and along with a number of other people across the world, think about on a daily basis with yeah. respect to the movement. Yeah. So anyone listening you know, can go to the thezeitgeistmovement.com and, and get a very clear sense of what we're advocating, which is extremely simple. It's just updating society yeah. to some very fundamental, simple – places of knowledge and application of technology that can create an abundance and that really can remove so many of the problems that we see if we just realize it for what it is. Yeah. We're, we're so blocked by politics and everything well, else. Well, yeah. But, and every ism that people could throw at you, I'm sure they have to put you in a box somewhere to fit you into their mindset. Right. And I, we're, I, me and a team are actually writing a book uh, that's called The Zeitgeist Movement Defined, and I'll hand it off to you. And this is this is a very, very dense text on both the flaws of the current structure and where the trends are going for the mm-hmm, future. Mm-hmm. So I, I, maybe I can come back on and talk about that. I would, right. I would love to. And and so before we end here, uh, you have a media festival coming up. Yes. Uh, what's the date on that? August 4th. August 4th. And it's here in Los Angeles. And it's global. It's here and there everywhere. Are, there are sympathetic mirrors, we call them, that uh-huh. we do these events. There's two event days that the movement does. This one's less intellectual. It's an arts celebration festival. Mm-hmm. We have our really intense intellectual day in March, but you don't want to be so oppressive all the time with data because it gets overbearing. Sometimes you just got to move your body exactly. with some music. And going back to the 60s, this yeah. is sort of a, a, an idea based on that gesture and getting people inspired yeah. to see change. And all the bands and acts that are performing on August 4th at Avalon in Hollywood uh, all have great commitment. Our good friend Rick Overton will be there, of course. Yay. He always does a good a Yay. good set for us. Yeah. So it's Socially Conscious Arts Festival. I encourage everyone to come down. It's an eight-hour event, uh, completely nonprofit. It's only 30 bucks to get in. Yeah. And uh, third year of this. So yeah. We'll so come hang out with some like-minded people. Absolutely. Exchange some ideas. Uh, enjoy some some music and some comedy and some mm-hmm. films that you're showing Absolutely. also. Yep. And uh, I'll be there. Nice. I'm going to come hang out and uh, see what it's all about. And People can go to zeitgeistmediafestival.org. .org, people. Yep. You get that, the .org part. <laughs> and uh, and are you still doing your um, – I'm sorry, I forgot the title of it. The little uh, – the, the, the web series you were doing. Culture the, and Decline. Yeah. Are you still doing those? Yep, there's one more for the season. Then I'm going to see if I can get someone to pick it up. I've, I've had some people talk to me about doing something with it uh, on some other networks. But yes, one way or another, I'm going to keep this thing going. It's my fun little – 
yeah. satire work. It's I, really fun. I'm taken so serious throughout, so seriously throughout the years. I decided to do something completely different to give people a different angle. Because in, in you know, in the spirit of comedy, and of course, your father, you have to you have to step back and kind of make fun of the whole thing sometimes in order to re- remain sane. A- absolutely, so. absolutely, and humor and and all of that is it's a very psychologically healthy way to approach it absolutely. all. Absolutely, you know, you look at the Dalai Lama; he laughs all day long. Right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> He's seen all sorts of suffering, including in his, himself. But all that uh, is available for free online at culture and, cultureanddecline.com. So wonderful. Well, thank yeah. you so much. And we will do this again and uh, must get a hold of Spiral Dynamics and check that out. I will, definitely. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Ken Wilber, too, and his whole integral theory stuff. So he talks, he's, his, some of his stuff's about that, too. Okay. Uh, but uh, everyone, in, uh, Come see me also this weekend. I'm going to be Saturday at the Sheraton LAX Gateway something or other uh, hotel doing Kyle Cease's um, Escape from Mediocrity event. I'll be speaking on Saturday at 11 a.m. Uh, only 45 minutes. I'm going to talk for about 20 minutes, talk a little bit about all this stuff I talk about here, but a little more. It's going to be skewed a little bit more about kind of connecting to your own voice and your own authenticity, staying in the flow. Uh, but I'll certainly be talking about how what keeps us out of the flow being the culture and the voices in your head. And then I'm going to do an amazing visualization experiential exercise. So come on down for that. And Kyle's great. He's got lots of great speakers and Dick Gregory speaking on Sunday. And it's just a cool event. So if you want to escape from mediocrity, come see me on Saturday. And, uh, I will be back here next week. I think we're probably going to do an octagon table discussion. Don't know yet because uh, that's the way I'm rolling these days. I really don't know what's going on much of the time. (laughs) Oh, well, that's the way life is. Uh, So hold on. So Logan has left. So I'm going to lean over here and up my, oh, my music thing. He's already got it all set. He's such a great, Uh, we are going to end uh, with, uh, Katie Goodman. Uh oh, where is it? Oh, God. Hello. It's really, isn't this a wonderful part of the podcast when I do this? Uh, okay. I think it's there. We're going to end with Katie Goodman. Uh, I didn't fuck it up because we know that's our favorite Katie Goodman song. And I hope that's what this is. If it isn't, fuck it. It's Katie Goodman anyway, who's fabulous and we love. So enjoy. Have a great week. Uh, please go to my website, kellycarlin.com forward slash waking, um, push the PayPal button, support us in our work that we do here. We would love to know your feedback. Email me at contact kellycarlin at gmail.com. Let me know about how you feel about the podcast, uh, how you're doing and if we're impacting your life in any positive way. And if we are in a negative way, let us know that too. We need to know these things. All right, people have a beautiful week. Have a great July weekend and, um, whatever you do. Don't buy anything at the after school, uh, the, the go back to school sale yet. Please just don't feed the machine. All right. Blessings. Well, everyone, we're back and. Relationship works because we never talk Except for make me some eggs Bacon and toast And aren't you gonna wear socks? Mm -hmm. 
be honest and true. What I like about you is that you're always high. You don't care if we never get out of the house, and neither do I. This must be the way we want it. This must be what we. And that's what silences me. You were with someone else. I snatched you up for myself, like the last piece of meat. Not that you didn't jump at the chance, old dog that you are. Said, get in the car. This must be the way we want it. This must be what we need. I'll make the martinis, and you fire up the weed. I think the talking things through is overrated. I'd rather be blue and medicated. It took a few years and buckets of tears for me to understand why your ex never once even complained when I took her man. She was patiently waiting for a sucker like me to come onto the scene. I did her a favor, and she'll be forever grateful to me. This must be the way we wanted. This must be what we. Doing mankind a very good deed. This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio, sir. Only at Smodcast.com. <laughs>